you can learn how to start over. You can learn how to begin again. And that's the most important thing. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Sharon Salzberg, one of the world's best-known Buddhist teachers and a leader in meditation retreats worldwide since 1974. She teaches both intensive awareness practice, Vipassana or insight meditation, and the profound cultivation of loving-kindness and compassion. She is a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barr, Massachusetts, and the Barr Center for Buddhist Studies. Sharon's latest book is Real Happiness at Work, Meditations for Accomplishment, Achievement, and Peace. I should also mention that we have a few spots that just opened up in the one-on-one program with Eric. If you've been wondering whether or not the program is right for you, this may help. This is what Anthony, one of Eric's former coaching clients, said when he was asked what he got out of the program. He helped me rethink the way I was approaching my own problems by just asking me questions. And it it was really easy to talk to him. He was super insightful. There was things where I would tell him my problems and he would just tell me these like tiny little things like, hey, what if you thought of it this way instead? And it it would just like be totally mind blowing. He just has a very nice way of of looking at things. In addition, the one-on-one coaching introductory pricing goes up in two weeks. So if you've been thinking about joining the program, now is a great time. And here's the interview with Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to have you on. I have read your books for a number of years now and and visited the meditation center that you were uh, a co-founder of. So this is uh, exciting for me to get you on. Um, We'll start the show like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. Then he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Uh, I think I have a somewhat unusual take on it, as well as... uh maybe a more common um, source of strength and inspiration from it. 
the unusual take is the so-called bad wolf, you know, where um, rather than feeling hatred or disdain or a kind of incredible dislike for that aspect, those qualities, learning a kind of compassionate awareness so that that wolf may not be overpowering, it may not take over, but it can sort of accompany one in a gentle way throughout one's journey, you know, so... There's that part, which I think is is somewhat more unusual. The uh, the more usual one, which does give me a source of inspiration and strength, is the concept of choice. You know, that so many forces may arise in our minds and so many different kinds of conditioning and habit and so on. But we, we really do have a choice and we have a tremendous amount of power because of how we might relate to those different forces. Some we we do want to nourish and nurture and, and strengthen and others we want to more gently let go of and, and not have them be so strong. So you have written a lot of books about a lot of things and given countless talks uh, really across the spectrum of uh, Buddhist ideas. But one of the things you're probably most known for is the idea of loving kindness. Can you just share briefly what that means to you now? You've been talking about it and writing about it for a long time. So what does it mean to you now after all these years? Uh, That's an interesting question. My first book was called Loving Kindness, and it came out 20 years ago. And I'm working on a book now called Real Love. So it's almost like that very question is, is permeating my day. Um, I think of loving kindness most profoundly as a sense of connection, and I think about all the ways we are connected in that I or we experience connection in life, which, you know, isn't necessarily something mystical or spiritual, but just through economic understanding or environmental understanding or all the ways we see our lives really have something to do with one another. And uh, I try every day to, with that sense, see how I act with people one-on-one or collectively, um, how much attention am I paying, how much am I recognizing. Yeah, we we do have something to do with one another. And because my work is so centered around loving kindness, a lot of what I try to emphasize is loving kindness is not a weakness. It doesn't make us silly. It doesn't make us give in to things. But it's its own kind of strength to to recognize connection and to respond from that place. Now, loving kindness is often, you know, it's, it's used synonymously with compassion often. And, um, you know, there's, there's been teachers uh, in the Buddhist school who have referred to something called idiot compassion. Mm-hmm. Help me understand the difference between loving kindness and idiot compassion. Okay, well, first, there's actually a distinction between loving kindness and compassion. Great. Although they're very close and they certainly support one another. Um, Loving kindness is that fundamental sense of connectedness with ourselves and with others, ultimately with all beings. And uh, it's often based on the recognition that everybody actually wants to be happy. Hmm. We make incredible mistakes because of the force of ignorance. Like we forget where happiness is to be found or we can't figure it out to begin with. But everybody actually wants to be happy that we all share this. Um, And compassion is considered the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering. So it's a movement of the heart and it's a movement toward to see if we can be of help. 
And that's based not so much on seeing everybody wants to be happy, but on recognizing our universal vulnerability, how everybody is vulnerable to change, to loss. Uh, we don't all share the same measure of grief or unhappiness, that's clear, but everybody is vulnerable. So compassion is not like a top-down experience. Um, it's an equalizing experience. And so compassion has a kind of tenderness around the sense of seeing suffering or the possibility of suffering. And that's one of the distinctions between loving kindness and compassion. Uh, somebody once said, compassion is love that experiences suffering, mm. that opens to suffering. Idiot compassion was a phrase of Trungpa Rinpoche's um, Tibetan Lama. Uh, really talking about when compassion is not accompanied by wisdom. And I think one of the things to understand with loving kindness or compassion is that they're not meant to define what action will take to something, some provocation or, or some situation. They're talking about the heart space that we're coming from and the motivation or the intention. So you might be coming from a genuinely compassionate place and your discernment, your understanding, your best guess of the most skillful way to act in that context, in that moment's really fierce, really strong. Saying no, having a boundary doesn't mean you're not coming from a compassionate place. It just means that's what wisdom is, is telling you to, to act you know, with. And so the idea of idiot compassion is more like you think you always have to say yes and you have to be kind of you know, squishy and you have to just give in all the time or give them all your money or whatever it might be. Yep. Yeah, that idea that everybody wants to be happy and that everybody suffers was one of those teachings that I think changed me on a pretty profound level when I really got it. And I go back to it all the time as a, you know, just looking at people and going, well, underneath, if you, if you strip everything else away, that's the fundamental truth of all of us. And we can all relate with that. And it's, it's a really powerful teaching. Yeah, I think it is very powerful. And it's very, uh, it's very interesting just to use it. You know, you're in a meeting or something and you look around the table you look at the people in the room and you think well you want to be yeah. happy too and you want to be happy too and you know what does that change what does that do yep it certainly helps us uh not not feel so isolated or different i'm going to read a couple lines from one of your writings that we talk on this show a lot about changing habits and you know the voices in our head the things that we say to ourselves over and over and i just found this a really moving thing so i'll, I'll just read it to you and then maybe you can elaborate upon it it is never too late to turn on the light. Your ability to break an unhealthy habit or turn off an old tape doesn't depend on how long it has been running. A shift in perspective doesn't depend on how long you've held on to the old view. When you flip the switch in that addict, it doesn't matter whether it's been dark for 10 minutes, 10 years, or 10 decades. The light still illuminates the room and banishes the murkiness, letting you see the things you couldn't see before. It is never too late to take a moment to look. Wow, I said that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, a, I, I love that idea of it doesn't matter how long it's been happening. It's always worth trying to make a change. I think it's really true. And one of the things I've loved about meditation practice is how sometimes the really big life lessons uh, manifest in meditation in these itty-bitty little packages. So, for example, 
in meditation practice, if you're practicing in a way where, say, you're trying to rest your attention on a certain object, like the feeling of the breath, it's usually not 9,000 breaths before your mind wanders. It's usually like two, right? <laughs> and then you're just gone, right. you're way gone. And then comes this magic moment when you realize, oh, I haven't really been with the breath. And that's considered the crucial moment because that's the moment we have the chance to, first of all, forgive ourselves, gently let go, and come back to start over. It's a sense of renewal. It's a sense of resilience. And you have to do it a billion times. You just do it over and over and over again. Right. And I think that's one of the most important things we ever do in meditation practice because that's the kind of thing we take right into our life. You know, you have a, an aspiration, you blow it. You have to start over. You have to begin again. Um, something happens and you fall down and you have to pick yourself up. You have to begin again. I think the way I say it now uh, in life is that I don't really believe anything in life is a straight shot. You know, we're always like having to start over and start over and start over. So in some ways, meditation practice, I mean, for me and for many people I've witnessed, really it forms the training ground for that ability. And that's why it's never too late. Um, coming back is coming back. It doesn't matter if you've been gone for an hour or, or 10 weeks, you know, you're back. Yep. I think that's so powerful. And we, one of the things I notice in a lot of people that I work with and in myself is this is sort of all or nothing mindset. When we make a mistake, it's like you just, oh, screw it. Right. I, you know, I blew, you know, I messed up and you just drop everything and walk away versus recognizing that's just part of the path. It's going to happen. It's normal. And, you know, just keep, keep moving forward. Which I think, I think that's the essential lesson. Um, and I, it's interesting, I think, even the way we frame things, like in language, because, and I, too, do it, but, you know, I hear people say, they, they ask questions like, um, how can I keep this level of mindfulness, or how can I maintain <laughs> this kind of concentration yep. after the retreat? And I always say, it's not going to happen, you know? Don't, don't even think right, that way. It's right. not going to happen. But you can learn how to start over. You can learn how to begin again. And that's the most important thing. Here's the rest of the interview with Sharon Salzberg. You talk about the idea that, and it's it's the it's the basic Buddhist concept that our no, our minds are naturally radiant, but that we have. I've heard you refer to them as visitors who come and. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. This can be really challenging to figure out. And when we try to deal with them on our own, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I recently had a few things I needed to talk about, and I signed up for BetterHelp again. And I choose it because it's convenient, it's flexible, and it works well with my schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com feed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash feed. Sort of obscure that view. And you talk about how, A, it's really natural that those visitors come, and and B, not fighting them so much. Can you talk a little bit about what those visitors that obscure our mind are and, and, a, and a, your, your thoughts on the best way to handle them? There's a beautiful quotation from the Buddha I've always liked where he said, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. Um, I just loved it, because as soon as I heard it, I have this image of myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business, and then there's a knock at the door. So I get (laughs) up and I open the door, and there's greed, hatred, jealousy, um, all those kinds of visitors that, Uh, We are so tempted, first of all, to fling open the door and say, welcome home. It's all yours, like forgetting (laughs) who actually lives here. Or, as I've certainly seen many times, we're tempted to shut the door desperately in their face, trying to pretend we never heard the knock, only to find that the visitor then comes in through the window or down through the chimney or somehow makes its presence known. So... I've often thought of that skill of what happens just as we open the door and we see something like greed or fear or rage or um, hostility, jealousy, they're visiting. Can we remember who actually lives here, remember who we are in effect in a deeper way, stay centered, recognize this is what I meant about the so-called bad wolf, you know, not freak out and not be afraid of the visitor and not hate them, but realize I'm not going to let you take over. Right. You know, you can, you can just go. And there are whole schools of Buddhist methodology, which to vastly oversimplify it would basically say, invite the visitor in for a meal. Keep an eye on them so they don't take over, but (laughs) you don't have to be so afraid. And I was once teaching uh, actually here at, at, the Insight Meditation Society, and I said that someone in the room didn't like that. So I said, how about invite them in for a cup of tea? And they didn't like that either. And they said, how about a cup of tea to go? <laughs> so I said, that's okay. How about, <laughs> you know, just give them a cup of tea to go. The idea is that our own resistance and resentment and fear actually makes that visitor stronger. Yep. It's... And it's better to have a calmer, more balanced, compassionate relationship. Right, that saying, you know, what you resist persists, you know, seems to really be true. You talk about uh, an essential question to ask ourselves, and this is not one that uh, I have done a whole lot, so I find it really um, intriguing to think about, but the question is, what do I really need right now in this moment to be happy? I knew you were going to say that when you started. I thought, what's that essential question? (laughs) Um, uh, Yes, I, I use that question a lot, and I find it very profound 
partly because I think we have so many kind of manufactured desires in a way. We're told by society or other people or the culture that we need certain things in order to be happy. And we don't necessarily question that. And so much of our life can be in a pursuit of those very things. You know, we need a certain level of fame. We need a certain kind of stature. We need success as packaged in a certain way. We need this many uh, uh, objects. I mean, I just had a move, a physical move from one apartment, which I sometimes sublet an apartment in New York City, even though I live in Massachusetts. And uh, I had to leave it. So that meant everything had to leave. So I was just shocked. And, and I made all those determinations. Like, I'm going to give away half those books. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and But we're taught, you know, you need this much accumulation. You need these many things. And then you'll be perfectly happy. And uh, it takes, first of all, a kind of courage and a great strength. And it's so liberating to step back from that and say, what do I really need in order to be happy? And, uh, you know... And, and we take that to psychological and emotional realms, too. Like, you know, maybe we've been taught that vengeance is strength and uh, endless competition is happiness. But let's take a look. How happy does it make me, actually? Yeah, I love that idea particularly, too, of, you know, what do I need in this moment? Because if I stop and I think about life, that's such a grand thing. And it's easy to think, well, I could need that. And then well, that would be good. And but if I stop and go right now, right where I sit, what do I need to be happy? And I realized that in the moment, if I if I were, you know, if I were to, if the visitors weren't maybe so present, I would have everything I would need. It's right here. There's nothing, you know, the moment can be enough if we allow it. Well, the visitors may be present, but if they weren't so overpowering, you know, right? That that's another way of, of finding that kind of happiness. There's a couple questions that come up on this show over and over again that I ask because I'm particularly intrigued by them or I wrestle with them. Uh, one is there's this idea of, of dealing with emotions. And on one hand, there is sort of the idea of repressing the emotions, you know, pretending they're not there, ignoring them. Um, you know, making them go away via alcohol, whatever. And then on the far other extreme is this idea of sort of indulging in them, wallowing in them. How do you find the middle ground between those two areas? I think that any training in mindfulness is precisely that. Actually, we sometimes call mindfulness the place in the middle. And it's practice. We practice and practice and practice. And, you know, craving for alcohol is a harder place to practice. So we start with you know, um, whatever is happening right now and work toward the harder places as well. But um, that's the precise practice. Something comes up, we have the habit either of diving into it, getting overwhelmed by it, especially having to guide our choices and our actions, mm -hmm. or we hate it, we fear it, we can't stand it. And to find that place in the middle where we can say, there's a visitor. Mm. I remember who lives here, but something is visiting, or um, this is what's happening right now. This is just the truth of the present moment. Look at that. I can be aware of it. I don't have to dive into it. I don't have to fight it. Look at that. Um, that's almost like the definition of mindfulness. And you know, rather than thinking of mindfulness as this kind of magical quality that some people have and other people don't, I just see it as a training, and, mm -hmm. and that. Uh, you know, we just practice and practice and practice. 
Yeah, I think that's certainly the case, that it is a training. Um, my ability to do it has has gotten a lot better simply by by doing it. I mean, I've been reading, you know, mindfulness-related things. You know, you wrote your first book 20 years ago. I probably started reading books like that about 20 years ago. And for years, on and off, I had just had the most inconsistent meditation practice. You know, I'd meditate hard for a month and then not the rest of the year. Or, And finally, over the last few years, I've just gotten to every day, I'm going to sit down and do this for a little while. And it's amazing what that consistent day after day practice does. It's not, you know, it's not anything, um, it's not like a miracle. It's not like I'm always happy. It's just that kind of like you said, I can, I can see more clearly what's happening in my brain. I can go, oh, this is what this is. And this is what that is. And, and it doesn't make, um, you know, I think one of the things that I thought was if I became mindful or meditated, I wouldn't feel bad. Once I recognize like, oh, I'm sad that I would no longer be sad. And that's not really the case. It's just that like, I like what you said, I'm better able to think about what my reaction, my behavior is around those things. I think that's totally true. And it's so, um, first of all, I think it's great that you've been practicing consistently, truly, because uh, it's also not easy, you know. Um, right. But I think it's the most important thing, and it also makes it the most inclusive thing, you know, because it's not up to, you know, to succeed or to make progress in meditation doesn't mean you have to be a certain kind of person or have a certain kind of life or a certain sort of situation. It means you have to do the practice. And anybody who practices can develop those strengths, and it's within everyone's capacity to do that. And so um, even though it can be incredibly hard to find the time, which is so ironic because we're not talking about eight hours a day, you know? Right, You're right. doing like 10 or 20 minutes a day. It can be very hard mm-hmm. to find the time, or you might feel like you're too busy, there's too much else to do, or even sometimes people say, I felt selfish taking the time for myself, it's its really an incredibly important thing to do. So if I'm just having casual conversation, and I sort of explain some of the concept of Buddhism and the, the Four Noble Truths, one of the things that comes up a lot is this idea of, well, am I just supposed to not want anything then? You know, if we say that, you know, that it's this, it's this craving that is at the root of our suffering— um, people are, am I just not supposed to, to want anything? And, and even myself, I look at the world and it looks to me like this idea of growing and striving and changing is fundamental. It seems like it's built into the fabric of, of the world, of nature. And so how do you, um, I always say to people, well, I'm sure a good Buddhist teacher could tell you why that's not exactly what it means better than I can. So now I'm going to ask you <laughs> to tell me why that's not true. Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's Well, part of it is a confusion of language. You know, there are lots of words in Pali or Sanskrit that are very precise and maybe not so much in English. So uh, the question of wanting or desire is, I mean, that's a word that is used to translate lots of different words in Sanskrit mm-hmm. or Pali. Pali is the language of the original Buddhist text. And so... Um, a lot would depend on one's motivation. You could want and aspire and have tremendous intensity around something really positive. And you can mm-hmm. want and aspire and have tremendous intensity about something that will really damage you or really harm others. And so um, the intensity is itself kind of neutral. It depends on what's accompanying it, you know? So mm-hmm. like, uh, I'm actually looking at that beautiful 
uh, painting behind your shoulder since we cannot see each other um, mm -hmm. on Skype. And, uh, you know, I could do a riff on, I really want that. Wow, that's kind of incredible. Wow, I have to have that. And, you know, there's not really room in my apartment in New York City or my house in Massachusetts. So maybe I need a new apartment in New York City. And, you know, maybe I need a bigger apartment in New York City with more wall space so I can hang more things. But that would be kind of expensive. Doesn't matter. Right. So that's the kind of right. wanting we get into because we're not thinking about what we might have to compromise in order to get what we want or who we might hurt or what we might be giving up to get what we want but we can't think about that you know and that doesn't mean you never buy the painting it means that you do it in a, a climate of wisdom yeah and i think the other thing that i've realized is i used to think that all striving and ambition came out of um a place of deep dissatisfaction and i think that i've found that striving and ambition and all that can come out of a place of the joy of creating, of making, of changing, not out of the I hate where I'm at place. I think that's very true. And uh, as you started speaking, the word creation came into my mind, creativity. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so I would completely agree with you. I think that there is that creative impulse and uh, even a compassion, you know, and in many translations, it's described as compassionate energy. It's a manifesting energy. So, you know, compassion doesn't mean you sit around and feel bad. It means you go toward to see if you can be of help. And that doesn't mean you go into in order to burn up, you know, or um, crash. But uh, you go toward. It's, it's got a manifestation of creativity to it. If it just meant sitting around feeling bad, then you're not helping anybody, including yourself. I won't even try and say what is your most recent book because it's hard to keep up with but one of your recent books was written with robert thurman it was called love your enemies mm -hmm. how to break the anger habit and be a whole lot happier and in that book you guys define four types of enemies i was wondering if you could walk us through those sure the the structure of that book came actually from bob who's a tibetan buddhist scholar so it's a, a system modeled within tibetan buddhism the first kind of enemy is the outer enemy, which is the clear conventional enemy. Someone's tried to hurt you or um, feels like a threat to you or those you love. Mm -hmm. um, the inner enemy is our own rage, our own anger, our own fear, um, the ways that we get overcome. And it's, that, that doesn't mean the appearance of those states, right? Those are just visitors. But when we get overcome by, we get defined by, they become chronic states. Uh, they affect our choices. They really define our lives. That's the problem. That becomes like an enemy because we've, we've like given over a lot of our life's energy to this one particular way of reacting. Um, mm -hmm. So that's like the inner enemy. The secret enemy within that formulation is the construct of a separate self that we live under 
the idea that we're independent rather than interdependent, that we should be in control of things, that there's something permanent um, and unyielding within us that we can count on, um, that's an enemy because it's so untrue. And so once we're living at variance to what's actually true, we suffer. That's what makes something an enemy. It produces suffering. And then, uh, as Bob described it, the uh, most secret enemy, because that's the Tibetan system, it's the outer, the inner, the secret, the most secret. The most secret enemy is a kind of self-loathing where we don't understand the actual capacity we're said to have for change, for wisdom, for love, for growth. And um, so, of course, that capacity isn't always realized and it may be covered over, it may be hidden, it may be hard to find, it may be hard to trust, but it said it's always, always there. No matter what we may go through, it's always there. And so when we don't appreciate that, then that's also a kind of enemy. And you- hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. You guys say that regardless of what type of enemy it is, the method to overcome those is, you know, follows a, a similar format. Can you walk us through briefly what you know, what is the right way to deal with those those enemies? Well, I would I would take us back to, you know, sitting happily at home and you hear the knock at the door. Mm-hmm. Like a visitor has appeared. So there are a couple of things in the Buddhist statement that are really remarkable. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. First of all, uh, a remarkable thing is the appreciation that these forces are just visiting. They come and go. They may visit a lot, but they're still just visiting. They're not who we essentially are. And so uh, we see something at play and we remember, I don't have to fall into this and I also don't have to fight it. I can find that middle way, that, that way of awareness to be with it, to recognize it, not get lost in it, not hate it, and then I'm free, even as it's going on. The other remarkable thing in that statement is that the Buddha said it's because of visiting forces that we suffer. He didn't say it's because of visiting forces that we're horrible people or we're terrible or we're worthless or anything like that. He said it's because of visiting forces that we suffer. That means compassion is always relevant. It's always appropriate including compassion for ourselves. Wonderful. So one of the things that you you talk a lot about the idea of setting intentions. You say each decision we make, each action we take is born out of an intention. And that we and then you kind of follow that with we learn and grow and are transformed not so much by what we do, but why and how we do it. And I've just sort of started to be a little bit more exposed to this idea of intentions. Can you elaborate on that? It's kind of a subtle and crucial part of mindfulness training where uh, you just turn some of your attention to where you're coming from, what's motivating you, what you want. I say sometimes like if I'm teaching in a company, a business, 
I say, you know, before you go into a major meeting or you have a big phone call, just ask yourself, what is it I want to see the most come from this encounter? Do I want to be seen as right? Do I want to be helpful? Do I want to be harmful? Do I want a resolution? It's just one way of beginning to see that, oh, there's, there's a motivating element here that's going to contour everything I say and everything I refrain from saying. And we continually practice that way. Like, where am I coming from? What is it I want? Um, because from the Buddhist point of view, the motivation behind an action is a crucial part of the action. We don't think that way so much in the West. But um, if you just look at something like generosity, for example, we know we can be generous from a whole variety of different motives. And Buddhism would say that it's a different action depending on what's motivating it. Like, I might give you a book. I might give you a book out of my tremendous pile of books um, because I like you, or maybe I'm giving it to you because I don't like you. And I think right in that first paragraph <laughs> is going to be something that's going to upset you, or maybe I can't bear the fact I have so many books and I've just got to give them away. It's kind of random, or you know, maybe I just gave a big lecture on generosity and all these people are looking at me and I want to be thought of as a generous person, or. I see you have that painting and I want the painting. And I think, well, maybe if I give you the book, <laughs> you'll give me the painting. You know, the physical act of my hand reaching down, picking up an object and moving it forward is identical. But the heart space that it's coming from could be a million different things. And, and that really figures from the point of view of Buddhist psychology, that really figures in our assessment of the action. Yeah. And I really like that idea of just trying to be more intentional about like you said, what is it that I want out of this encounter, this moment, this day? You know, I, it's it, sometimes it's, we, well, I don't even do a good enough job on, on a broad scale, but I've just found it as I've gotten that idea lately of sort of going, okay, well, what sort of, in, what sort of attention do I want to bring to the world today? And Yeah, it's great. You share an analogy that um, I, I don't quite remember where you heard it from, but I thought it was very... Um, entertaining and insightful, which was watch your thoughts like a very elderly person watching little kids play at the park. Yeah, that's a, um, that's actually a meditation instruction from Tibetan Buddhism, uh, which I usually use actually not even um, so exclusively as a meditation instruction. I use it as a description of the combination of balance and compassion that I think we're looking for in action. So let's say you're a really elderly person and you're sitting in a park, you're watching children play. You know, you've lived a life. That's what being elderly implies in this example. You've lived a life. You've probably had to let go of a lot of things. You've uh, earned some wisdom through life. And there you are. You're watching these children play and you see this little kid completely freaking out because they've broken a shovel. So you're not all cold and mean you don't go over them and say hey kid it's just a shovel you know wait till you have a real problem you're kind you're tender you're present you're caring but you also don't fall down on the ground sobbing um because you know what shovels break that's a part of life you have perspective you have spaciousness you have wisdom so i talk about that combination of spaciousness and kindness as certainly i as a person as an individual if i were seeking help from somebody and I told them my very sad story, I wouldn't want them to say, hey, it's just a shovel. But 
I also would not want them to fall down on the ground sobbing. Then I'd really freak out. Um, I want that that sense of caring and tenderness and kindness and also spaciousness and some glimpse of something beyond the immediate situation I find myself in. And so um, I think that in general is what we want as human beings when we seek help. And I think it's something, I think that's something we can also remember we can offer as we offer help. You know, people really don't get served by our falling down on the ground and freaking out. Um, you know, <laughs> right. but it's not coldness. It's not iciness. It's, it's a real caring, but with perspective. Exactly. So I think I'd like to end with uh, one of your statements again and ask you just to, to go into a little bit more detail about it. But it says that the difference between misery and happiness depends on what we do with our attention. I think that's true. Um, we, uh, you know, for example, something may arise in our minds, something uncomfortable, something distressing, one of those unpleasant visitors. And we may add so much shame and so much distress and feeling I should have been able to stop it. We've been meditating for more than 40 years, for God's sake, why is it still there? That we've taken an uncomfortable situation and made it a million times worse. I'm all alone. I'm isolated. I'm the only one who's ever felt it. It's a million times worse. Whereas we can also have that uncomfortable thing arise, whatever it is, that distressing visitor. And we can envelop ourselves with a sense of presence and balance and kindness, um, remembering we're not all alone, that this is a part of the human condition. Uh, we can have compassion for ourselves as well as for others. And it's a whole other world, even though that same thing is arising. And so, too, with beautiful and wonderful and lovely things that arise, we can be so distracted, we can hardly take them in, or we can really honor that. Look at that. You know, that's the wolf to feed. That That's a capacity I have. And so everything really depends on what we do with our attention. Well, I think that is a great place to wrap up uh, this episode. Sharon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us for all the writing and work that you do. And, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You can learn more about Sharon Salzberg and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash Sharon. And that's the name Sharon, not like, hey, you sharing this pizza with me or do I need to go get my own?